gracious Lord and God, You are worthy of the praise we bring to You tonight. You are enthroned in heavenly majesty. You are the Father of infinite mercy and grace. You dwell in eternal glory together with Your Son and with the Holy Spirit. And we praise You that this mystery of Your being that You have revealed to us in Jesus Christ is our joy and our pleasure. And constantly we exclaim in marvel and wonder that our fellowship is with You and with Your Son, Jesus Christ. And in the joy of the communion of the Holy Spirit, we live for You and we love You. We thank You for this day that You've given to us, for the blessing of rest and fellowship, for the privilege of worship, for the teaching of Your Word in which we have shared together already. And we pray as we turn to the sacred Scriptures again this evening that by them You would make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. We ask that we may afresh discover that Your Word breathed out by You is profitable for teaching and reproving, for correcting and transforming, for training and equipping. And we pray that as it is preached tonight, it may likewise rebuke our pride, encourage our dullness, transform our characters, and most of all, bring us by Your voice into Your very presence to bow before You in worship and in wonder. Teach us, therefore, we pray, our gracious God, and lead us by the hand into Your truth. For this we pray together in Jesus Christ, our Savior's name. Amen. Please be seated. Now we continue our studies in Paul's letter to the Romans. This evening we've reached Romans chapter 9, and our section this evening is chapter 9, verses 14 through 18, which you'll find in the Pew Bible if you're using it, and page 945, page 945. Some of us may be landing in this series, and we're already halfway through Romans. It's not an easy book to uh, simplify in a couple of sentences, but the very simple version of the story thus far is that in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul has announced his theme. It is that the gospel is the saving power of God, and it is so because in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed, and it is received by faith. He has spent some time from chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20, speaking about why we need the power of the gospel. It is because we lack righteousness before God, whether we have had special revelation from God like His ancient people, or whether we have lived without the Bible, we lack righteousness, and we stand under God's condemnation. But chapter 3, verse 21, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God has been revealed, and the wonder of that righteousness is that the righteous God who could righteously condemn us for our sin has found a righteous way of saving sinners by the sacrifice of His Son. And in the light of that, Paul says in chapter 5, through Jesus Christ, righteousness begins to reign in our lives. And he has gone on through chapter 8 to spell out the joys, the privileges, the confidence, the assurance that brings to us, even bringing us to the point where we say with Him that there is nothing in all creation that can separate us who are in Christ Jesus from the love of God in Christ. 
And now in chapter 9, he has gone from those heights, as we have seen, to the depths of sorrow and personal pain. The sheer power of the light of the gospel makes him all the more sensitive to the plight of those who have rejected the gospel. And so he tells us in chapter 9, verse 2, that he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. And the reason is, as he tells us in chapter 10, that his kinsmen, according to the flesh, have rejected the gospel and are not saved. They have sought to establish their own righteousness instead of trusting in the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. And these three chapters, 9 through 11, Paul is working through for us and with us how it is that in this horrible situation where those to whom the gospel came have rejected the Messiah, how God is still righteously working in the pages of history. And so he says in verse 6 that it is not the Word of God that has failed. Indeed, he argues from the Old Testament Scriptures that the promise of God was always a discriminating promise. Not all those who are naturally Israel are the Israel of God. And he shows us from the Scriptures that this is indeed what the Scriptures have taught us from the beginning. And so, in the case of Abraham, we are told that Abraham was told that one of his sons was the son of promise, and the other was passed by. In the case of Isaac, both of whose sons were in the womb of the same woman at exactly the same time, he is told that one of these sons is the son of the promise, and the other son is rejected. As it is written, verse 13, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And this, verse 11, although they were not yet born, God had chosen Jacob and was passing by Esau. Although they had done neither good nor bad, in other words, God's distinction between the two of them was not based on anything in them. It was a sovereign decision of God. It was not based on works, but based entirely on God's choice. And so he raises the obvious question in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and whomever he hardens, he hardens as he wills. You can sense the Apostle Paul's personal anguish and struggle, especially those of us who may have at least a small analogy of what the Apostle Paul is speaking about, the burden that we carry 
for our kinsmen and women according to the flesh who have rejected the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the thing that is so particular about Paul's situation is that those who have rejected the Messiah are those who have had all the promises about the Messiah. As he says here in chapter 9 and verse 4, theirs is the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. And the promise that God had given, you remember, to Abraham was the promise of an everlasting covenant that would never fail. And this is the reason why the Apostle Paul has raised the whole question as to whether God's Word has fallen to the ground, because it certainly looks as though that promise has failed. It looks as though as he surveys what happens to him in every synagogue in which he preaches and from which, without exception, he is ejected, that the great promise of God that his everlasting covenant made with Abraham would not fail has now in Paul's own experience failed abysmally as he preaches the gospel. And he has been reminding us, focusing our attention, saying to us, search the Scriptures, search the Scriptures, search the Scriptures, that from the very beginning the Scriptures themselves have taught us that the promise of God is fulfilled in pursuit of the purposes of God. And this is not simply the teaching of the Apostle Paul, but as we saw last time, this is the teaching of the prophets, and this is the teaching of our blessed Lord Jesus Christ. It is He supremely who said to His own kinsmen according to the flesh, you claim to have Abraham as your father, but the truth is, Abraham is not your father, or you would have believed in Me. Your father is the devil. And so Paul takes this up, and he begins to grapple with it, and he looks at the Scriptures. He looks at the story of the birth of Ishmael and Isaac. He looks at the story of the birth of Jacob and Esau. He reflects on the words that are spoken at the beginning of Malachi chapter 1 about Jacob and Esau, and he finishes this section, you notice, by citing them, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. And it's very clear from the context of those words in Malachi chapter 1 that in this instance, Paul is not saying, God loved Jacob, and he loved Esau just a little less. The context in Malachi chapter 1 is of a massive rejection of Esau. And the proof positive that that is what Paul is saying lies in the question he asks in verse 14. What then, he says, is there injustice on God's part. Now, you see what this means. This means that if we understand and interpret the previous verses so that they fit in with our own scheme of things, so that nobody could ever raise the question, is there injustice with God, we have certainly misunderstood the verses. Paul clearly understands that what he is saying about God's economy is going to raise the question, is there injustice with God? That is to say, as we hear God say, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, these two boys were in the same mother's womb at the same time then if God should choose the one and pass by the other, then is there not injustice with God? 
And I say that because there is a great tendency among Christians in reading these verses from here, chapter 9 and verse 6, through to chapter 9 and verse 13, to understand them in such a way that nobody would ever ask that question. But you see, if nobody ever asks that question, it is proof positive that our interpretation of these verses is grossly mistaken. This is a statement about the absolute sovereignty of God in His disposition of His mercy with respect to sinners. And that's the reason why the next section begins with this question, a protest, really. But that isn't fair. That isn't fair. Or if I can put it this way, if that question was in your mind last Sunday night or has lingered in your mind all through the week, or if you weren't here last Sunday night and you've just heard me saying these things, and the first question in your mind is, surely that's not fair. That's the clearest possible evidence that we have rightly understood what the Apostle Paul is saying. And that's what we are here for in the first instance. In the first instance, we are here to ask the question, not how can I reconstruct the Christian gospel, but first of all, what do the Scriptures say? And Paul is saying what the Scriptures say is, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. And that does raise, it should raise in your mind the question, therefore, is God not just? Is God not fair? And Paul is going to help us to respond to that question. And he responds in a very characteristic way. I've said this before, I'll say it once again and perhaps never say it again, but you notice his immediate reaction is what we would nowadays call a gut reaction. God forbid, in the old King James Version, let it not be impossible, or in the English Standard Version a little more tamely, by no means. Now, what's the lesson here? The lesson here is this that as we study the Scriptures and as the Scriptures are poured into our hearts, one of the things we discover, if I can put it this way, just a little crudely, the Scriptures transform our gut reactions. And in our time, we need Christians who have accurate, biblically informed gut reactions so that almost by instinct, all that has been poured into the very way in which we think smells a theological or doctrinal rat and realizes, even before you begin to think about it or explain it, there is something there in that suggestion that is utterly contrary to all I know about God. So here Paul is saying, on the one hand, God says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. The protest comes, but that's not fair. Is there unrighteousness with God? And then the gut reaction, God forbid, impossible, by no means. There never is injustice. There never is unrighteousness with God. And that isn't simply Paul's prejudice because what follows, you see him doing it again. He goes back to the Scriptures, and he brings out the Scriptures, and he expounds the Scriptures, and he applies the Scriptures. He isn't just shooting off some gut reaction. He's a man whose mind has been informed by the study of the same Bible we have, by the same method that we study it, He isn't saying, well, let me give you a few apostolic revelations, and that will settle the matter. He says, what do the Scriptures say? 
And you see, he, if I can put it this way, has found one of the great secrets of living the Christian life in an ungodly world, that the Scriptures are all sufficient for us to understand God's ways and God's world. But then, you see, he begins to spell it out. And I think what he's saying is this. He has reminded us that God has said, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. The issue is, is there therefore unrighteousness with God? God forbid, he says. And then in verses 15 to 16, he shows us the righteousness of God in God's expressions of mercy. And then in verse 17 and 18, he shows us the righteousness of God in God's expressions of judgment and rejection. And you see that. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Verse 15, for. You see, that's the introduction of an argument, the introduction of a reason. There is no injustice in God for this reason. And then again in verse 17, there is no injustice with God for this reason. And you'll notice that in both instances, the reasons are to be found in the pages of Paul's Bible in the Old Testament Scriptures. He is a thinking Christian. And as we know from the Acts of the Apostles, he reasons with people out of the Scriptures to show them the character and the ways of God. Well, first of all then, in chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, Paul speaks about the way in which God's righteousness is shown in sovereign mercy. And the passage he cites from the Scriptures, of course, here in verse 15 are words that were first of all spoken to Moses. Indeed, there's an emphasis on that fact in the text that Paul gives to us. The words in the English Standard Version, for he says to Moses, actually the very first words Paul says are, to Moses. And I think he's saying something like this. He is saying, if there is an issue here, let us settle that issue by going back to Moses. You know, there were, there were two or three great figures in the Jewish mind. There was Abraham, our father. There was great King David. And there was Moses, who had given them the law. And so, it's as though he's saying he's already gone back to Abraham and David earlier on. But now he says, well, let's think about this in terms of Moses. How did God reveal Himself to Moses? And he takes us back to that great incident. You remember in Exodus 32, when Moses' brother foolishly allowed the people to manipulate him into giving them an idol instead of worshiping the invisible God. And Aaron made this, this pathetic excuse when his furious brother came down the mountain with the tablets of the law of God and saw this horrific idolatry. And Aaron said, well, we just threw the stuff into the fire, and this golden thing came out and it was a divine miracle. And so, of course, this is how you see us. And God visited the people with judgment. You remember there was a slaying of 3,000, and there was a plague coming upon the people. And you remember how Moses made intercession in the same way that the Apostle Paul makes intercession here in chapter 9. So, you can see this passage is very much in his mind. As he says, Oh God, I would wish I could be accursed for the sake of my kinsmen according to the flesh. He's remembering how Moses had prayed, God, if you'll save them, blot me out of the book of life. And he's pleading with God for the salvation of the people. And God has a gracious disposition, and he doesn't annihilate the people. And so Moses comes to God and he says, Now, God, I want a guarantee. I want a guarantee from you. I want a fixed signature here that you will go with us, whatever. 
So he says to God in that great petition, show me your glory, show me your glory, and then we can be sure that no matter what we do, we are safe and secure. And God declines to show him his glory. God affirms to Moses that God is God. He is not at the beck and call of Moses, no matter how great Moses may be. And so he says to Moses, there are no blank checks, but I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and be gracious to the ones to whom I will be gracious. Do you see the point Paul is making when he picks these words up out of that context, with the whole context still obviously in his mind? What's he saying here? Well, it's very simple, really. Here is somebody saying that God should pass by one and set His mercy on another is utterly unfair. What we want from God is justice. And he's saying, you don't understand. You're speaking like a fool. You're speaking as though you had some claim on God. You're speaking as though you didn't understand that ground zero as we stand before God is that we are desperately guilty, wicked, lost, God-deserting sinners, and we have no claims on God whatsoever, not a single claim. If you will forgive me for putting it this way, before Him, I have forfeited all rights to life and health and happiness and the pursuit of all of them. I have no rights before God. I have deserted Him and rebelled against Him. There is no good thing in my flesh, and I have no claim upon Him whatsoever, not a single claim. All I deserve from God is that He should judge me to a lost eternity. And unless I'm standing there, I'll never understand the Apostle Paul, because that's exactly where he has taught us to stand in the first section of this letter, vile and full of sin I am. That's where we all make the big mistake. We say we want justice from God, and we don't know what we are saying. Justice from God? My dear friends, if you're going up 77 at 85 miles an hour and you suddenly see bright lights, and that car flashes past you and stops the man in front of you, you inwardly breathe a sigh of relief and say to yourself, Thank heavens I'm not getting justice tonight. How much more in the presence of God. Oh, that we would see this, because it's the, it's the deep secret with which Paul is working. And some of these questions that arise, arise out of hearts that have never been subdued by their true condition before God, as we saw last week. All there is is that this God of holy justice, who has every righteousness to damn us all to hell, has in His amazing mercy shown mercy upon utterly undeserving creatures who have nothing in themselves to distinguish them from anyone else. As I think I hinted last Lord's Day evening, Shakespeare understood this, didn't he? The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. Therefore, Jew, she's speaking to Shylock, even if you've not read the book, some of you have seen the movie. Therefore, Jew, remember this. 
Though justice be thy plea, that in the course of justice none of us would see salvation. We do pray for mercy. That's what he's saying. He's saying we're looking at the the, the God of the universe through the wrong end of the telescope. We do it by nature. Every single one of us does it by nature, not least evangelical Christians. There is something in me that has caused God to have mercy upon me. My dear friend, there is absolutely nothing in you that has caused God to have mercy in you. Not one single shred of your sanctification has caused God to have mercy on you. The only reason He has had mercy on you is because He has had mercy on you. You say, I've got to be able to understand this. That is to say, I want to be God. That's what you're saying. You're saying, I don't think I'm going to receive this mercy until I understand what it is in me that has caused Him to have mercy upon me. And we could say until we drop dead in this pulpit, dear one, there is absolutely nothing in you that has caused God to have mercy in you. Not one single shred of anything you have done in your Christian life. Not one verse of the Bible you have read. Not one prayer you have uttered. Not one person you have led to Christ. Nothing you have done in the life of the church, no position you have had. Absolutely nothing in you has caused God's mercy. Otherwise, it wouldn't be mercy. It is all of His mercy. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And there is nothing in me that constrains it. It is all in Him. His amazing righteousness shown in this mysterious mercy that He's had upon me in Jesus Christ, I who was dead in trespasses and sins, without God and without hope, but in His great mercy with which He has loved me, He has, in the fulfillment of His purposes, raised me up. And He's saying, you see, that is how God works in history. His righteousness is shown in His sovereign mercy. Now, I think it's commonplace for us to think that the real difficulty here is the expression of God's righteousness in His wrath, but it's not. The reason we have difficulty with that is because we don't understand God's mercy. We think that God has had mercy on me because of something in me, and therefore He should have mercy on somebody else because of something in them. And Paul is trying to say to us, there's nothing in you that's caused God to have mercy. Absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing in me has caused God to have mercy on me. That shakes the foundations of my very being because so much of my security, even before God, has been in the fact that it's something I've done for you, God, in order that you might have mercy on me. And you see, He's stripping me bare. He's tearing away the sufficiency and the pride and my confused ideas that I've made little contributions to my salvation. I've done nothing to contribute to my salvation except the sin that has made it necessary that God Himself and God alone save me. That's what He's saying. And you see, once I grasp that, I begin to grasp in verses 17 and 18 how God's righteousness is shown in His holy wrath. And it's interesting, it goes back to the same book of Exodus, although he goes back a little further. And he now says this. He says, if you see that salvation is a matter of God's mercy, so that it depends, verse 16, not on human will or exertion, but on God 
who has mercy. Then he says, let me give you an illustration of God's holy judgment. Let me show you the righteousness of God's holy judgment. For, he says, the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And so he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, of course, as we know, the Scriptures tell us that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Several times in the early chapters of Exodus, we're told that Pharaoh hardened his heart. But actually, we're told twice as many times that God hardened the Pharaoh who hardened his heart. The fact that Pharaoh hardened his heart is an indication of the righteousness of God in hardening the heart of the Pharaoh who hardened his heart. But the point that Paul is making here is that here is this man, and of course, he's speaking within the context of the fallenness of humanity. Here is this sinful man, and God, in His infinite wisdom, has raised him up and given him a position of great prominence in which he believes he can stand against the Almighty God and His sovereign purposes as he hardens his heart against Him. And God is saying about him, Pharaoh, your hardening of your heart against me does not get around or to the back of my sovereign purposes. I have raised you up in order that I might show my majesty and power by bringing you down to doom and destruction. In my absolute sovereignty, my absolute sovereignty. That's an awesome thought, Paul. That's, that's almost more than we can bear. Yes, says Paul, I know it is almost more than you can bear. Now, I'm almost tempted to say, That can't be what Paul is saying. If that's what Paul is saying, then there is a question that I insist on asking the Apostle Paul. If God is thus sovereign with sinful man as to show mercy exclusively on the grounds of his own choice to show mercy, and to bring righteous judgment on an actual sinful man because he is pleased in his sovereign purposes to bring actual judgment on an actual sinful man, then my question for you, Apostle Paul, is if it's all God's sovereignty, how dare he find fault because we are in a situation where we cannot resist His will. Now, just in case you don't know Romans chapter 9, put your eye down on verse 20 that we didn't read. You will say to me then, verse 19, why does He still find fault? Or who can resist His will? You see the point? The point is that the very fact that that question arises is a very clear indication that this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying. That's why the question arises. If Paul had been saying, actually, God's mercy is really rooted in in the fact that there is something He finds in us that was rather attractive to Him and who thought we were good prospects for salvation, and if there was something that distinguished 
the sinner who is saved from the sinner who isn't saved, then we'd say, oh, the reason God has turned His back on him is because there's more sin in him than there is in the person who has been saved. And what Paul is doing, this is why this, is why this as it were, pulls the rug from under our self-righteous feet. He is saying, there is no reason, there is no distinction between one sinner and another sinner that would cause God to have mercy on one sinner and not on another sinner. It is entirely His sovereign will that's the reason the question comes to the surface. But if it's His sovereign will, who can resist His sovereign will? How can He then find fault with us? Now, do you see the folly of that question? We'll come to it next week. That's the questioner saying, so there's no fault in me. Why do you find this fault? instead of the sinner saying, all I deserve from the hands of a righteous and just God is that I should be damned to hell for all eternity. That's what I deserve. I'm no different from anyone else. There's nothing in me that would prove to be attractive to God. You see, we're back to the same error in our thinking when that question arises, but the fact that it arises underscores for us that the Apostle Paul is saying this monumental thing, that God has mercy on whom He will have mercy, and He hardens whom He hardens. Now, as I say, the first thing we need to do is just to try and take that in begin to argue with Paul, then we will get the worst of the argument, won't we? Because all the arguments are here in this passage, and people do argue with Paul, say the most outrageous things about Paul. But every time we argue with Paul, we fall back on the same mistake. We are saying, there must be something in me that made you have mercy on me. And Paul wants to say to us, dear one, there is nothing in you that made God have mercy on you. That's the reason why Paul is such a worshiper of God, because he realizes God is not sharing his salvation glory with the likes of the Apostle Paul. It is all of grace, it is all of mercy, and it is all of God. Now, let me say two or three things very quickly as we as we feel the weight of this. First of all, there are people who would say, if I believed that, then evangelism would be both unnecessary and impossible. If God is this sovereign and having mercy on whom He will have mercy, evangelism is pointless, unnecessary, and impossible. What do you think Paul would say to that? Do you know what I think he might do in an unguarded moment? I think he would take his shirt off. That's what I think he would do, and show you his back. That's what I think he would do, and say, why this then? Why these scars, hundreds of them? Why this suffering? And he would say, don't you understand, dear child, that this sovereign God in the pursuit of His merciful purposes is pleased to use those upon whom He has had mercy in bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to lost sinners? There is every purpose in evangelism. Second thing to say is this, Jesus taught exactly the same thing, exactly the same thing. And He taught it in the most, for us, surprising place. He taught it in the moments preceding 
what I often call the greatest evangelistic invitation in the Gospels. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. You will find my yoke is easy, and you will find rest for your souls. But do you remember what he said to his father immediately before he issued that gospel invitation? He said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to those who had no understanding, because this was your gracious will. And that's the greatest evangelist the world has ever known. Let me put it this way. If Jesus lived within this framework of reference, if I'm going to be a burning evangelist for Jesus Christ, I need to live within this framework of reference and understand it is all of grace. And then this third thing. Is there anything in all the world more humbling than this? Paul has spoken, hasn't he, in, in the third chapter about the way in which as the Word of God condemns our sins, every mouth is shut, and we are held guilty before God. But my problem is uh, my mouth continues to open. I begin so foolishly to think, ah, uh, there is there is that in me that distinguishes me from others, and that's why He saved me. I'm just the kind of savable person God likes to save. And my mouth starts opening. I begin to express my opinions. I begin to express my opinions to Paul, my opinions to God. And all the while I'm showing, I've never really taken it in, that I am a hopeless, helpless, lost, condemned to eternity sinner, unless the one who has mercy will have mercy upon me. And it humbles me into the dust. The law of God that exposes my sin humbles me, but the sovereign mercy of God humbles me into the dust because it brings me to the point where I really see that He has saved me because He has chosen to save me, and not because of the little contributions I think I may have made to my salvation. And at the same time, this is a very remarkable thing, and, and it's only real for us when we bow before it. It exhilarates us beyond measure. It transforms our worship and our praise beyond measure because we've come to understand that while we often say it is all of grace, it really is all of grace. And the more my foolish pride is humbled, under the sovereign mercy of God, the more my poor soul is enlarged, and I am lost in wonder, love, and praise, that when there was no reason in me, O great Jehovah, for you to have mercy upon me. In Jesus Christ, you had mercy upon me, because you would have mercy upon me. What more is there to say? You bowing before that? Of course, there are things that are difficult to understand because He's God. But the real question is, are you bowing before Him because He is a God who has had mercy on you for no reason He has found in yourself? 
or are you still smuggling into your salvation something you are, something you have contributed, something you have done, so that contrary to Paul, it does depend on human will or exertion. My, this flattens me. If you could see inside my heart tonight, you would know this flattens me. And I pray to God that it may flatten us all, because it's only when we are prostrate that we're able to see how greatly He has loved us. And it's those who discover how much they have been loved, who love much in return. Heavenly Father, we think of our studies in Romans and those passages with which we have wrestled trying to understand them. We come into verses that are like an ocean before us, and we feel as we walk into that ocean that all our old securities are unsteady under our feet, that the waves of Your sovereignty wash us forwards. Our security in ourselves is diminished and destroyed. Our foolish and infantile views of how we have contributed to our salvation and done something that you have left undone are all drowned in this ocean. And we are left helpless, needing to be held up by your mercy. And we are so glad that as we have come to faith in Jesus Christ, we have learned that you have had mercy on those on whom you will have mercy. O oh God, even as our minds are stretched beyond the limit and our hearts are overwhelmed by the sheer weight of this truth, we pray that we may also be buoyed up by this knowledge that when you saw nothing good in us, you set your heart of love upon us, and you even gave your beloved Son for us. And we worship you and place our hands over our mouths lest we misspeak and bow down lost in wonder and love and praise. O oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.